Now with that, we're going to go ahead and jump in. We've been in a series looking at King David entitled, A Man After God's Own Heart. And David is a man who God himself called a man after his own heart. That wasn't a title that was given to him by man. That was given to him by God himself. And in the first week of this series, we looked at how David was not the hero of his story, but he positioned himself to let God be the hero of his story. And that's why he could slay Goliath. In week two, we looked at how sometimes you are called to fight the battles in life, and sometimes you're called to flee the battles in life. And you can't fight every battle that comes along, but you shouldn't flee from everyone that comes along too. And David gives us some parameters for that. And then the third week of this series, we looked at the qualities of manhood and how David displayed and exhibited an example of manhood for us. And this week, we're going to look at how David encountered the holiness of God, the holiness of God. Now, I need to warn you this morning before we jump into this message that this is a little bit of a hard message. As I had a pastor when I was a little guy, he would get up in the pulpit from time to time and he'd say, now today we're going to have a spinach sermon. And he said, it's hard to swallow, but it's good for us. And that's really what this message is going to be. It's a little bit difficult to, to wrap our mind around, but if you eat it, it makes you healthy. And then you can look like Popeye. You know, when he ate the spinach, you get all swelled up. So we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter number 6, if you want to turn there. 2 Samuel chapter number 6. And we're going to start in verse number 1. Perhaps one of the most confusing passages in the entire scriptures. 2 Samuel chapter 6, starting in verse number 1, it says this. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David rose and went with all the people who were with him in Beljuda to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart, and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which is in the hills. And Uzzah and Aho, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Aho was went before it. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God to take hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez, uh, Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obim Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obim Edom, the Gittite, for three months. And the Lord blessed Obim Edom and all of his household. And it was told to King David, the Lord has blessed the house of Obim Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went up and took the ark of God from the house of Obim Edom and to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed an oxen and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all of his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. And David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with a shout or the sound of the horn. Perhaps no scripture is more of a head scratcher 
than this passage. Such a strange set of events surrounded such a seemingly harmless act on the part of Uzzah. And this morning, we're going to jump into the depths of this passage, and it goes beyond a simple action of reaching out and grabbing an object that's about to fall off a cart. In this passage, we get a glimpse of the holiness of God, and we get the weight of sin, the wrath of justice, and the sweetness of grace all wrapped up in this one passage. Here, David, who's been serving the Lord his entire life, is starting to have a new aspect of the holiness of God in a dramatic way. And my prayer this morning is, is that we can learn from this event the impact of the holiness of God. And I want to walk you through this passage and the aspects of the holiness of God and the proper response from us as Christians to who God is. And here's the big idea of this message. God's wrath is deserved. And his grace is a surprise. Therefore, let us never pass up an opportunity to encounter his grace. Now, what's going on in this passage? David is the new king of Israel. He is just been, he's just taken the, the, the seat of the throne, if you will. He's just started to solidify and solidate his kingdom. He was the man who slayed Goliath in his youth, and then he had spent several years on the run from Saul, and now he's king over the entire nation. And God said, you are the man after my own heart, and David is at the peak of life, if you will, and he's at the peak of his reign. And so David does love the Lord, and he has a desire to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem, which is the newly minted capital of Israel. And as a new king, David has set in the process in his heart to consolidate the kingdom, and he wants the Lord with him. He intends to bring the Ark home so that there can be a central place of worship. And this is commendable because God has shown time and time again that there was going to be a Messiah come, and that he was going to give his life on Mount Moriah, which was right next to Jerusalem. And so this This was very symbolic of bringing the presence of God back to the capital. The ark was the center of the Israelite worship. After God had led the people of Israel out of Egypt, he commanded them to build a tabernacle. And in this tabernacle, there were going to be two rooms. There was going to be the holies and then the holy of holies. And inside of this tabernacle, there would be countless articles of furniture to facilitate the worship that God had called them to do. This tabernacle and the articles inside of this were designed and and commissioned by God himself. He gave very specific instructions of how this was to be built because they were types and shadows of the real articles in heaven. And this is how God intended to make atonement for our sins. Now, the ark itself was a main focal point. It was in the innermost room, the Holy of Holies. The ark was box-shaped, and it was made of wood, and then the entire box was overlaid in gold, and the lid itself was made of entire gold. It was hammered out. And then on top of the lid, there were two angels, two cherubim facing one another with their wings touching. And in the corners, there were four rings in which you would insert two poles to carry the ark by the priest. Now, we have to understand, and that's why I read this first part of this passage so slowly, we have to understand that the ark is more than a box. The ark was more in the box. It carried the presence of God. God chose during this time to reside on top of the ark. That's what the passage tells us. That's why it goes into great detail that this ark carried the name of God who enthroned himself on top of the ark. 
The passage tells us that it bore the name of God. In other words, he owned it. And because it belonged to God, he made demands of how it was to be treated. As a youth pastor, I used to have to use my truck a lot to haul kids around. And how many of you have teenagers or kids? They destroy vehicles. They're, they're gifted by God. God has gifted them with the ability that if they see something that ha- doesn't have a stain on it, that they have to put the stain on there. So I had bought this truck, and you can't tell it now because that truck has been beat up, and I'll, frankly, I've just given up. But back in the day, you can ask Charity, every weekend that truck got washed. It got waxed regularly. It was spotless. You could eat off the floor of that truck. And so then you, the idea of putting teenagers in there was just, was just almost uh, depressing because you knew that they were going to spill. And so I just made a rule. I was like, my truck. So if you're going to ride with me in my truck, which they all wanted to ride with me in the truck because it didn't stink like the church van. Come on, somebody. <laughs> you could ride with me, but you are not eating or drinking in my truck. It's not going to happen. So on one particular trip, a young man who I now love, but at the time was, uh, he needed extra grace. He ran into, he ran into the gas station and bought about $30 worth of, of, of candy that could melt into my seats and drinks. And he ran it out, just all excited. Yay, look at all this junk I bought. And I said, you are not going to eat my truck. And he just gives me this look. And I said, look, you knew the deal. You ride with me, there are no food and drinks in my truck. You can eat it at home, you can eat it on the side of the road, I don't care, but you are not eating it in my truck, you're going to have to wait. And that 15-year-old had the audacity to look at me and tell me I needed to relax and stop being such a control freak. And I said, son, let me tell you something. When you're a man and you pay $30,000 for a vehicle, you can do whatever you want, but when you're riding with me, this is mine. And you're going to do what I say. Do you understand me? Uh Uh-huh. You know? I was like, boy, what's wrong with you? (laughs) Relax. That was mine. I had paid for it. And I had certain demands of how it was going to be treated. And no one was going to go and disrespect my property. Why? Because I was invested in it. And that's exactly what's going on here at a cosmic level with the ark. This was God's. He has specific rules about how his presence and his property was going to be treated because it bore his name. This ark would have been with the Israelites the entire time they were in the wilderness and in the conquest of Canaan. About 50 years before this passage, the Israelites had sinned against God and the ark had fallen into enemy hands, the Philistines. And God was punishing the Philistines with plagues until the point they finally decided to put it on a cart and send it back to the Israelites. They said, we got to get this thing out of here. The ark was then put at Uzzah's father's house and the ark remained there for quite a long time. Now, we don't know why the ark was left at Uzzah's father's house. Perhaps it was because the Philistines were still a threat and it would have been difficult for King Saul to bring it home. Maybe he was just neglecting the things of God. We don't know. Either way, David, the newly minted king of Israel, the man after God's own heart, wants God's presence close to the capital city so that people can resume worshiping God the proper way. He has good intentions. So he gets 30,000 military men together as an escort. They go down to get the ark and to bring it home with celebration. They're dancing, there's joyful worship, and there's songs. Everybody's having a big time, big fun, and then something strange happens. The Bible says that the ox pulling the cart stumbles, the ark starts to fall to the ground, and Uzzah reaches out to keep the ark from crashing to the ground. And the Bible says that when Uzzah touches the ark, God's anger is kindled against him, 
And God Himself strikes Uzzah down in an instant, and he dies. In fact, the Bible says that God broke out against Uzzah. The word is like a water dam breaking and causing a flood. How many of you have ever been so mad at your kids that you want to break out against them? That's exactly what God did here. He broke out against Uzzah and smite him on the spot. He was overcome with the wrath of God and he dies. And David sees this happen to Uzzah and he gets mad at God's. What? He was just trying to keep the cart from or the ark from falling. This brings us to a point of contention. What are we as Christians? as believers in God, to do with this passage. I mean, this is, eh. You know, we're talking about Jesus. We're telling you, like, Jesus died on the cross. This is awesome. They're like, what, what about Uzzah? And they're like, you know what I mean? I what do you do with that? The scripture talks about the love of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God. God's always trying to save people. But against Uzzah, who's just trying to save the ark from falling on the ground, God breaks forth in wrath and dies. How do we respond to that? Well, a lot of us respond like David, confusion and anger. Like, God, what are you doing? This isn't, this, isn't, this isn't what you're supposed to do. A lot of people try to read this passage and say, well, that's, that's not a God I want to serve. Other people try to ignore it and say, well, that was the Old Testament. That was, that was before Jesus. Jesus, man, it was all good. Jesus, we, we, don't look at that, you know. The problem is, is that we read accounts in the New Testament where God did the same thing. Ananias and Sapphira, in particular, lied to the Holy Spirit. God struck them down right then. So we try to cover this up and make excuses with God, but we can't ignore it. Personally, I like the honesty of David here. He was angry at God, and he didn't hide the fact. This passage is important to us because... We will run into the same problem that David did from time to time. We will see the wrath of God displayed, and we'll have a hard time reconciling this in our own mind. How do we respond when we see the wrath of God displayed in the world? How do we not identify with David's anger when we see God break forth against people? How, how, how can God allow these things to happen? Let's think about this for a second. What did Uzzah do to deserve this response from God? What Uzzah does makes sense. He saw the, ark, the, the oxen stumble. The ark was about to fall. He had to do something. He had to, he had to respond. I mean, it's almost instinct. Like if I take this box and I throw it out into the crowd, you guys are going to catch it. Why? Because that's instinct. I didn't know who to throw it to. I just kind of like, <laughs> I was going to throw it to Brother Loki. He had something in his hands. And so I was like, well, I could go to Gladys. I'm just going to go on back here. Surely Lillian can catch it. It's a natural response. If you throw something, it's going to come. You're going to move. So the oxen starts to stumble, and the cart starts to fall, and Uzzah does the, just the logical thing out of instinct. He reacts, and he keeps it from falling from the ground. And you would think that God would think Uzzah. Instead, God kills him. Why? And the answer is very simple. God killed Uzzah because Uzzah sinned against the holiness of God. Numbers chapter 4, sorry, verse number 15 says this, And when Aaron and his sons had finished in covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, as the camp set out, after that the sons of Koath shall carry these, but they shall not touch the holy things, lest they die. 
These are the things of the tent of meeting that the sons of Kohath are to carry. God was very direct. He said, these things are holy things. And when they are to move, they are to be carried. They are to be carried by the poles as I was fashioned. They're not to even look at them. It's to treat them with respect. The ark was God's. And this ark is where God's presence resided. And God was very direct. They break my commands on this. They will die. He's not, he's not messing around. It wasn't like something happened that God didn't tell. He said, look, I'm dead serious about this. You carry this with the poles. But if you touch it, you look at it, you disrespect it, you are going to die because this represents my holiness. The clan of the Kohathites were to move the articles, but they were to never touch it. They could put the poles in the ark, but they couldn't touch the ark themselves. They were not to, get, to gaze upon it. And God had a no questions asked policy about this. You do this wrong and you're going to die. There were no circumstances permitted for the ark to be transported by any other way than by the poles. Now, most scholars believe that Uzzah was a Kohathite. He knew the law. He knew what God had instructed. He knew that him and three of his clansmen were to carry the ark. It was not to be put on a cart. He knew the consequences if he broke the law, and that was death. So when Uzzah touched the ark, it was not an act of heroism. It was a sin of arrogance and presumption. R.C. Sproul said it like this. Uzzah assumed that his hand was less polluted than the earth. But it wasn't the ground or the mud that would have desecrated the ark. It was a touch of man. The, the earth is an obedient creature. It does what God tells it to do. It brings forth its yield in its season. It obeys the laws of nature that God has established. The temperature falls to a certain point. The ground freezes. And the water is added to the dust. It becomes mud just as God designed it. The earth doesn't commit cosmic treason. There is nothing polluted by the ground. God did not want his holy throne to be touched by that which was contaminated by evil, that which had rebelled against him, that which in its ungodly revolt had brought the whole creation to ruin and caused the ground and the sky and the waters of the sea to groan together and travail, waiting for the day of redemption. Man, it was man's touch that was forbidden. Uzzah was not an innocent man. He was not punished without warning. He was not punished without violating a law. There was nothing arbitrary or whimsical about what God did in that moment. There was, there was, but there was something unusual about it. Do you think about that for a second? There was nothing whimsical about what God did in this moment. He told them in numbers, you touch it, you die. Uzzah touched it and he died. There was nothing whimsical. There was no surprise, but R.C. said something at the very end, but it was something unusual about it. See, in this moment, a sin, a treasonous, rebellious creation acted in arrogance of presumption and desecrated the holiness of God, and God punished that sin in his righteousness. And this seems harsh to us. We don't understand it, nor do we like it. However, what this event shows David and what it shows us is that we do not understand the holiness, justice, sin, and grace. 
We get these backwards. We don't understand these things because we get angry and we get offended when we experience the holiness and the justice of God. David was angry because he experienced the the justice and the holiness in this moment. Why was David angry? Because David was used to experiencing God's grace. David had come to expect God's grace. And in this moment, he was surprised by God's justice. You see, David suffers the same problem that all of us suffer. We get God's justice and his grace out of order in our lives. We hear so much about the love of God and the grace of God and the mercy of God that we come to expect his grace and we are surprised by his justice. When in reality, we should expect God's justice and be surprised by his grace. We have to get a biblical understanding of the holiness of God. From God's holiness comes his justice and his grace. The justice of God is connected to the righteousness of God. God is righteous. He is holy and righteous, and therefore he always plays by the rules. God does what is always consistent with who he is. He's straight. He he never does an unrighteous thing. And there's no such thing in God's economy of unrighteous justice. God does the right thing at the right time in the right way every time. The question is, is God qualified for the job of a righteous judge? And the answer is yes. God doesn't take bribes. He doesn't show partiality. He never acts in ignorance. He acts in all wisdom, all power, and all authority. He never divorces his righteousness from his justice. He never condemns the innocent. And he never punishes the innocent. He never punishes with undue severity. So we have the same problem David did. We don't understand how sinful, how filthy, and how evil we are until we encounter the righteousness of God. And that's what happened in this passage. They're celebrating with the ark, they're dancing, yay. The name of God is being mishandled, and it was sin. And the problem is, is they had followed the Philistine order of putting the ark on a cart instead of the Levitical command from God to have reverence for the holiness. David had mixed the pagan and the secular, or sacred at this moment. And we do the same thing. There are so many things we do in our own sinful way, and we expect God to bless it, and he won't. We carry God's name as Christians, but we pollute his holiness with our filthy hands. They sinned against God, and God punished that sin in his righteousness. And when we sin against God, we too will receive punishment. Just as we can identify with David in this moment, we can also understand what's going on that we are all Uzzah. Just as Uzzah sinned in arrogance and presumption, he didn't understand the, the seriousness of the weight of his sin. We too sin in arrogance and presumption. Our actions show that we don't understand who God is. Nor do we understand what the weight of sin is. Now this is key. Why is sin such a big deal? Here it is right here. See, in the Garden of Eden, God told humanity that when they sinned, they would die. Go read it when you get home. You eat, you die. That is how it's going to work. We would die. But notice that God didn't say you'll die someday. He said you'll die. And the insinuation is that when they eat, they were going to die right then and there. That's when it was going to come. That raises two questions for us. 
Why such a serious consequence for sin? And why didn't Adam and Eve fall over dead as soon as they ate from the forbidden fruit? Let's deal with those one at a time. First, why is the punishment for sin death? You see, sin is treason to the character and to the name of God. We as humans are created in the image of God, and God gave humanity dominion over the entire earth. So our responsibility as God's creation is to reflect the image of God to creation. So when we sin, we desecrate the image of a holy God. Even the slightest sin is cosmic treason. We bear the image of God, so when we sin, we're telling all creation, this is who God is. Once you think about it, how many of you, you know, you've all done it. You've seen kids running around, misbehaving, throwing things, hitting people, running amok, and you say, man, those parents are worthless. And then when your own kids, you're like, whose kid is this? This is that mother's child. Why? Because when we look at kids, we take that as a representation of the parent. And in a cosmic way, we are reflecting who God is to creation. And when we sin, we're desecrating and defiling a holy God. We become false witnesses of who God is. We look at all creation, all of nature that God's put under our dominion and say, you want to see what God looks like? He looks like this. We would say to the world, God is covetousness and God is ruthless and God is bitter and God is a murderer and God is adulterer and he's a slander and a thief. That's what happens when we sin. That's why this passage is so clear that the ark carried the name of God. Sin, cosmic treason must be punished, and death is an adequate punishment for such an egregious act. So if sin is so serious, then why didn't Adam and Eve die instantaneously? Because God is patient, and he's merciful, and he's long-suffering, and he hopes and desires that all of us would repent and turn to him. In our sin, God is not obligated to give us mercy or grace. He's not. He's obligated to give us justice. Every day could be our last, and God would be righteous for taking our life as sinners. But in his grace, minute by minute, he gives us another, another breath. And in the hopes that we will encounter his grace through Jesus Christ and through the sacrifice of Jesus, we have our sins removed. That's why God didn't execute punishment. 20, 30 years ago in your life when you sinned for the first time. He's patient with you. He's patient with me that we surrendered to Jesus. The problem is that we've come to expect that grace and we're surprised by his justice. And we need to get that turned around. The question is not why does God punish sin? The question is why does he let us live at all? Why are we not all like Uzzah? Because God loves you cares for you and he's patient he's merciful so when david sees his buddy die in his anger he starts to connect the dots in his heart we know this because the approach that he takes a second time of moving the ark was completely different david made three changes the second time he came and grabbed the ark the ark was carried the sacrifices were made he took six steps and he wore in a fod notice the symbolism here David followed on the word of God. David sacrificed everything before the Lord, and he surrendered in worship. You see, when you expect God's grace, and you're surprised by his justice, what happens is we get arrogant, we get presumptuous. We start thinking we can do anything that we want. We forget the, the sacrifice that Jesus made. We forget the weight of it. 
And one of my biggest fears as a Christian, and I, I think for the church, is that we lose the awe of what God did for us. And when we expect his grace and we're surprised by his justice, we're losing the awe that a God of the universe would come down and save me. We lose the awe that he would save you. And when we lose the awe of that, then we stop worshiping because it comes all about us. And when we lose the awe of what God did, we stop obeying his word because we just do our own thing. When we lose the awe of that, then we stop sacrificing everything to him because we feel entitled. That's exactly what happened to David. And yet now he's starting to make the switch. After David gets his life in alignment with God on this, he realizes the plan of God. David had a realization. God didn't choose David because he was righteous. He didn't choose David because he was holy. God chose David and he chooses us to make us holy and righteous before him. God chose us to form us in the image of his son and to repent and to bring him righteous glory. You see, in the fall of man, God made a promise that a savior would come rescue. He made the promise to Adam and Eve. He made the promise to Noah in the flood. He made the promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. A savior is coming. Righteous punishment is going to be placed upon him so that we can be righteous before God. This man was Jesus Christ, and Jesus was going to come from David's lineage. Jesus lived the sinless life. He lived the righteous and holy life that you and I could never live, and yet he laid all that down, and he exchanged that righteousness for our place of sin so that we could then stand in his place of righteousness. We took what happened. When we look at what happened to Uzzah and think that it was a violent, extreme example of God's justice, we don't understand justice because if you want to see the most violent, extreme example of God's justice, and all you have to do is look at the cross. Because at the cross, justice was paid. At the cross, justice was experienced upon Jesus. The most violent act of God's wrath and justice happened upon Jesus at the cross. If anybody had the right to complain about the justice of God, it was Jesus. Because he bore a punishment he didn't deserve. He was righteousness, and yet in that moment, he became sin for us. Jesus willingly took our sins so that we could come and we could give our lives to him. It was brutal. It was ugly. In fact, Isaiah prophesied that nobody would even recognize Jesus. It's staggering to see what justice demands when you look at the cross, and yet he did all this so that you and I could be forgiven. I want to close if Charity wants to come back with this. Let us never get comfortable with grace. Let us never get so accustomed to it that we take it for granted. Let us not take grace for granted or we're going to end up like Uzzah and David. Every morning when we experience God's grace, it should cause worship in our heart. Every moment when we experience his mercy, it should allow us to live with the new purpose that he's placed in our life. What should be the response to grace? It should be the same as David. David experienced and got things right. He started trusting the Lord and his word. And man, we got to honor God's word. There's so many questions we have in life. So many things that we don't understand, but we can find the answers here. We don't live in any way that just seems like to us. We allow the word to prune our heart and cleanse our hands through the power of the Holy Spirit so we can bring glory to the one and only King, Jesus Christ. Just as David 
offered a sacrifice too, we need to offer God everything of who we are in joyous worship. When we see the grace of God upon our lives, we need to stop and we need to say, man, God, you, you can have it all. Sin's all about us, but when we realize the grace and the goodness of God, we say, God, I'm giving you my everything. God, I'm giving you my everything. Lastly, we surrender and worship. David stripped off all of his kingly garments and he wore a simple linen ephod, a simple robe, and he danced before the Lord with all of his might. He humbled himself in that moment. And when you see the goodness of God's grace, the only response is to strip away everything in your life and say, God, I'm surrendering everything to you and worship.